0: Let us pray. Almighty God, draw near, enlighten our hearts and our minds, and renew our affections and our loves toward Christ. That as you have drawn near, we know that He is with us. So enable us, O oh Lord, to draw near in return, to know His reign, to know His mercy, to know His compassion that flows out of that good reign of His. And forever. Change us more and more into the very same image of our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we pray. Amen. Every new beginning is the end of some other beginning. Some of you might recognize that lyric it's from a song that came out over 20 years ago at this point, I think. Um, by a band called Semisonic. It's called Closing Time, and it's about the closing of a bar. But at the very end of the song, they started saying, every new beginning is the beginning, is the end of some other beginning. Or wait, maybe I wrote that down wrong. Yeah, no, that's right. Every new beginning is the end of some other beginning. Sorry, I got lost there for a moment looking at it like that. wait." But the point is that when we enter into something new, That means that something else has ended, and it seems strange, I think, to be talking about that on this last Sunday of the year because we're not quite to the new thing yet. Next week is Advent one, is the first Sunday of Advent, the beginning of the church's new year, which means that's the new beginning, and that means that today is the end. Today is the end of our old year, and where do we turn to in this end? Where do we look to? What do we consider? about this ending day of the year, this last Sunday of worship for the church year. We look to Christ being King. We look to Him being the fulfillment of all things, to Him bringing about His good promises in everything. We look at Him as King. What's unique about Christ the King Sunday is it's one of the newest feasts in the church. It started in the early 1900s, and it was actually placed on the Sunday before All Saints' Day. It was placed on the Sunday right before All Saints. And the reason for that, if I recall correctly, was because they wanted to emphasize Christ's kingship over all people as as the Roman Catholic Church was entering into a remembrance of all the saints, of all the great saints who had gone on before and in preparation for also remembering All Souls Day, another day that the Roman Catholic Church has, another feast day that remembers all our family members who are in purgatory and prayers for them to be released from purgatory and to be purified as God desires and to be pure. But the Roman Catholic Church placed it right there on that Sunday before All Saints Day and All Souls Day as a reminder that Christ is the King right now. Not just at the end, but in the here and now, as we celebrate, as we prepare to celebrate the saints, they were saying, let us celebrate Christ as the king of those very saints that we are celebrating. But later in the 60s, it got shifted to the last Sunday of the church year. So it moved from the end of October to almost the end of November. In order to bring about that eschatological emphasis. To bring out that end times emphasis on Christ being king and ruler over all things. To bring about an emphasis not only on his current, present reign, but to draw our hearts and minds forward into that future reign over a new creation. But all of it goes together. Because Christ's future reign is his reign right now, and his reign right now is his future reign. He is the king, period. He is the king of all things, the king of all creation, the one who oversees and looks upon all of us. As we celebrate this Christ who is our king, we have to ask, how does he become king? Why is he king? How can he be king? What does he do as king? So many questions that we can talk about and think about this Sunday. But The one thing I want us to think about is the fact that Christ is king, period. He did nothing to be king. He simply is the king because he is the son of God. Out of his very nature, he is the king because the father is king. The father is the ruler of all creation and thus his son, who is of the same essence and being as the father, and yet a distinct person is also declared to be king over all things. And because Christ is the king of all things, he brings us to forgiveness that we might live with him for eternity. That we might live with him in the new creation and it flows out of his kingship. I think that I used to think more along the lines of he's king because he brought us forgiveness. But really it's because he's king that he can accomplish that forgiveness for us. His kingship enables him to go out and do the very thing that we can't do. His kingship enables him to bring us the forgiveness that we desperately need. To bring that renewal, to bring that change, that transformation, that new heart and mind that is necessary to come before the Father, to come before this true king. And so today we're going to look some at John 18 and consider what Jesus is saying to Pilate. We're going to consider how his kingship means that he will bring us forgiveness as he calls his people to himself. And so here in John 18, and verse 33, we're in the middle of Jesus' last night before his crucifixion. We're in the middle of his trial. We're in the middle of him being shuffled back and forth between the various Jewish leaders and with Pilate. And here he comes before Pilate. The Jews have attempted to accuse him of some vague things. Pilate asked them, what has he done? And in verse 30, they said, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. See, they they can't even give an answer for why they're bringing Jesus to the governor. He wants to know the specific thing that he has done, and they're just like, well, we wouldn't bring him to you if he wasn't doing something. What kind of answer is that? And so Pilate quickly just simply responds, well, go deal with it yourself. If he's done something you don't care about, that you are upset about, then deal with it yourself. If you can't tell me what he's done, then it must not really be that he's broken some real law of Rome. But they said, we can't do that. We can't judge him ourselves, because we can't put him to death. It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death, at which point I think Pilate probably realized, okay, he's done something, but they won't say what it is. But it's something they think is worthy of death according to their own laws. And so he turns back and goes to speak with Jesus. And he asks him, are you the king of the Jews? Because that was one of the accusations that had been brought to him, that he was the king of the Jews. That Jesus was the king and he says, well, are you saying this out of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? Pilate being the cynical man that he is, is simply questioning Jesus, wanting to know what's going on. And he asks him, maybe even with a sense of sarcasm, are you the king of the Jews? Because that would just be ridiculous because the Jews don't have a, any other king but Caesar. In the big picture of things, there's only one ruler of all things on that world, in that world, and that is Caesar. So are you really claiming to be the king of the Jews? But Jesus perceptively responds with a question so often. Is this what someone's told you, or are you actually curious about me? And Pilate rightly answers, am I a Jew? Do I have anything to do with this, these Jewish people? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. They've given you over to be judged, to be dealt with. What have you done to deserve this? What have you done that's gotten their ire all up? At which Jesus can then explain what's going on because Jesus couldn't answer his question directly. That question of, are you the king of the Jews? Because to say yes, while true, is something that Pilate couldn't understand. Pilate is only thinking in political terms. He's thinking in politics, thinking in kings who rule over physical kingdoms and wage war with others and to have someone claiming to be a king there in Palestine, there in the Jewish territory, would be an insurrection. And so Jesus can't simply say, yes, it's like the messianic secret. He told people there earlier in his ministry not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah when they recognized him because the people didn't understand what the Messiah was to do. The people didn't understand who the Messiah was and what he could do and what he was called to do. They saw the Messiah as this warring king who would come in and throw out the Romans, throw out all the Gentiles and reestablish Israel as the great and glorious kingdom that it once was under David and Solomon. And so Jesus wouldn't let them know that he he would tell them not to share That he was the Messiah yet. And likewise here, he can't just come out and say, yes, I'm the king. Because Pilate wouldn't understand what he meant by that. But he also can't say no to the question because that would be lying as well. That would be a lie because he is the king. Just not in the sense of what Pilate means. Jesus is wanting to speak truth here. So he can answer neither yes nor no to Pilate's question. And that's why he poses a different question. To get to the heart of the matter, to bring it down, to give him the room to explain what it is that he is doing and what it is that he is. And so Jesus, and so Pilate asked him, what have you done then? And this is where Jesus explains his kingdom. He explains the beauty of his kingdom. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world, not in the sense of it has nothing to do with this world. That it's detached from this world But that it is not out of this world. It's not from this world. It doesn't flow out of the things of this world My kingdom is above and beyond that It interacts with this world. Yes, but it is not of the world just as jesus said be in the world But not of it don't act as though you come from the world His kingdom is not of the world It is not from it It is a different kind of kingdom It is a new kind of kingdom that He has established, and that would be fully established through His crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension and consummated at His return. It is not from this world, and His kingdom means, if He has a kingdom, that means He is a king. To claim a kingdom and say, well, I have a kingdom. That would be me saying, I'm a king of some sort, and so some translations, have said where Jesus answered in verse 36, my kingdom, he says my kingship is not of this world. And then it flips back to if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. And that's because the Greek there king behind kingdom can mean kingship. It can mean ruler or reign, one who reigns, or it can simply mean kingdom. It's all packed in there. And for Jesus even to say my kingdom means he has to be a king because he is claiming it. To claim a kingdom is to claim to be a king. But Jesus is concerned with explaining what kind of kingdom this is, which will define what kind of king he is. That he is a king not in a worldly sense, not in a sense that flows or derives from the way of the things of this world, but he is a king that reigns over hearts and minds, that reigns over people that he renews, that he calls to himself. If he had a physical kingdom, they would be fighting right now in this moment. As his being judged and put on trial, they would have rebelled. His people would have, so that he wouldn't be delivered. And that is the sure sign in that moment that his kingdom is not from the world. Those he rules over are not rebelling against Rome or against Pilate or against the Jewish leaders. The king is being sent to trial to be put to death ultimately in just a few hours. So, Pilate, taking this all in, says, So, you are a king. And Jesus says, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus came into the world to bear witness to the truth. And the truth is that Christ is king. And the truth is that he comes to stop a rebellion that began a very, very long time ago, to stop the rebellion of Adam and Eve, to stop the rebellion of all of humanity against their Creator, against their true and righteous King. And Yahweh's work to quell the rebellion, He picked a man, Abraham, and established him to become the new family before Him, through whom a true King would come up, through whom all the world would be blessed, through whom that rebellion would ultimately... Ultimately, be quelled. Abraham's family grew and grew and grew, and eventually there came a great king named David. David, who warred against the Gentiles, who expanded Israel's borders to the furthest point they could ever be, who brought an internal peace to the people by putting their enemies to rest. But yet, there was conflict even in the midst of the peace he was trying to create. For he was still a sinner. He was a man who abandoned God at times. And yet scripture continually calls him a man after God's own heart. Because he would turn back from his abandonment. He would return back to the one and true king, Yahweh himself, and confess his sins and repent of those sins. And draw near once more and be more and more renewed by that work of God in him. Because of who David is and who he was before the people, he becomes the archetype of what the Messiah should look like. This one who would overthrow the kingdoms of the world and pave the way toward peace. For David's son is the one who, is, who brought the ultimate peace. He brought peace to the people of Israel. In fact, his name is very much related to the word for peace in Hebrew. He is almost like the son of peace. And yet he failed in all that he did. For at the end, in his desire to create peace with so many nations, he had taken on wives and concubines in abundance. And he let his heart be led astray by them. And he turned to idolatry. And thus the kingdom was ripped from David's family. And Israel broke into two. That is what happens in this physical world with a physical king, with a regular earthly king, with a king that is of this world. Everything will fall apart, and Israel ceased and lost its ability to be a light. For during David and Solomon's reign, the Gentiles were looking to Israel, and they were looking to Yahweh, and they were being drawn in. But their sinfulness, their inability to live up to the law, led to the downfall of Israel. And there were moments throughout the rest of the history of Israel and Judah where there were moments of light, there were moments shining out, To where people were drawn, the people saw the truth of Yahweh. But never in the way that God intended for the rebellion to be quelled, for it was not enough. And though Israel was intended to be a light, it was not the ultimate Messiah. For the Messiah was to come out of Israel. And that Messiah and that king is Jesus himself. For he was born into this world, and that's what we're getting ready to start preparing our hearts for, his birth into this world. To be the king, to speak the truth. To bear witness to that truth and that reality of the brokenness and the rebellion that is in this world. And yet Yahweh's good promises to bring about a new people, to bring about a renewal of all things. For in Yahweh's choosing Abraham, He made a promise to Him. And then He made promises to His children. He makes promises that become, that come to fulfillment in Jesus. For God desires to bring about His own honor. To prove his honor, to prove his loyalty, to prove his faithfulness. And that's what he does in Jesus. He makes Jesus to be the king. And through him being king, he accomplishes all of his promises. The father accomplishes his promises by bringing us to forgiveness, by bringing us to himself. By renewing our hearts and our minds through the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus the king. Jesus has always been the king. For the moment of his birth to the moment of his resurrection he was the king to begin with just as Queen Elizabeth the was queen as soon as her father died but she was not coronated immediately she was still the queen even without the official ceremonial coronation she still acted as queen likewise Jesus was not coronated immediately but he was still the king he still acted as the king he still expanded his kingdom he still grew his kingdom he still came to reign over the hearts of his disciples to direct them to the truth to reveal to them the truth of what he was doing and the work that he was accomplishing and according to nt wright jesus's coronation was the cross itself for when he went to the cross he went there as a king and by going to that cross, he accomplished our forgiveness. He removed the sins that stood before the Father, and thus he became king in the fullest sense in that moment, by taking away our sins, because he was already king. He revealed and demonstrated his kingship by taking that which stood between us and himself, as a good king would do for his people, as he could see that his people were enslaved by the very sin that was causing them to rebel. And he takes that sin from them onto himself to renew them, to transform them into the kind of people that he wants them to be. He takes it to himself because he is king. And that is what Jesus is doing this day. And as a true king, he takes our sins to himself, which means that he also acts as a priest and a prophet for his people. The king speaks truth. And the king prays for his people. The king dies for his people to be raised up again. The true king is also priest and prophet for his people. He intercedes for us and he brings our needs to the Father. He represents us to the Father. He acts as our substitute, taking our sins upon himself, fulfilling a priestly role that no other priest could do, removing all of our sins by being the true and perfect priest which flows out of his true and perfect kingship. As the prophet, he revealed here that he is here to bear witness to the truth. He speaks the truth to us day in and day out. He speaks the truth to us of our sinfulness, of the ways that we rebel against God's laws and his commandments. He teaches us about our condition and our need for reconciliation, our need for repentance, our need for renewal. He speaks to us as the rebels that we are. And that's good. Because if we weren't told the truth, we would never turn to the truth. If we weren't told the truth of the reality of what we are in and of ourselves, why would we ever turn to Jesus? Because it's only with the truth, when we are told that we can come to grasp the reality. Because as He tells us that we are the rebels, He enables us to turn back to Himself, to turn into His presence, to become part and parcel with Him, through union with Him. We come into His presence because He took the shame of our sinfulness upon Himself. He took the penalty that we deserve upon Himself, because He is the true King. The true king reigns for us. The true king calls us to himself. The true king is a gracious leader of us all. And pouring his mercy upon us. Bringing us that forgiveness and redemption. Taking away our rebellion. Renewing our rebellious hearts. As we turn to him. And so as we look to the end. Of all things. Jesus return in his consummation and renewal of all things. There is an ending, but it leads into a new way of life, a new beginning, a fully renewed creation. Every new beginning is the end of some other beginning. Things started and they fell apart. But when the new beginning comes with Jesus' return, the old will wrap up. The old will be done away with. The old will be put away because he accomplished forgiveness that gets rid of all of the old things that have hurt us, that are damaging creation, that are driving us away from him. And so we long and we hope and we look forward to that day of Christ's return when he inaugurates the new beginning of a new creation and sends us forth in those renewed hearts and minds. And between now and then, yes, he is reigning over us. And so let us lean into his reign. Let us depend upon his reign. Let us know his reign more and more deeply and know that as the true king who reigns over us, he is compassionate toward us and brings us forgiveness. So we can turn from our sins day in and day out and be renewed and transformed by the power of his kingship, by the truth of his kingship, by the reality of his kingship. So may we walk in this kingdom that he has created over our hearts and minds looking forward to that day when it is fully consummated and the full reality is brought to bear and we are all renewed in the new creation. And so, O Lord, mercifully grant that the peoples of the earth, divided and enslaved by sin, may be freed and brought together under your well-beloved Son's most gracious rule. Amen.